I want you, Coobs, to rank the worst decisions in college football this year, and we'll revisit them at the season's end. Is that is that okay? That's fair. I already have number one in the book, so we'll okay, just number go one, number one, after We this. have an early leader, okay? If we have an early leader, I'll give you that. Hello, welcome. It is week one of the college football season. We are officially here. It's Monday, August 29th, and we are so glad that you're here with us. Whether it's on ESPN's YouTube channel or if you're here with us via the podcast, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, it's awesome to know that you're spending week one's Monday here with us on Always College Football. I'm Greg McElroy. Along with me, as always, is Mark Kubiak. We have a terrific game plan in store for you today as we're going to revisit some of the games from this past weekend. You're going to say, well, none of those games were that significant in the big picture. I understand that, but it did make us feel a certain way about maybe a certain team or two or perhaps a hot seat or something along the lines of that. So plenty that we need to get to when it comes to evaluating what week zero was. We'll, of course, have to react naturally. Big Red, if you if you just want to plug your ears and listen, or just maybe you want to listen and just indulge and maybe punch a pillow, we'll be here for you as well. Plus, we're going to play a game that we like to call low-hanging fruit. Some of the rapid reaction over the last week or so in college football, is it low-hanging fruit or is it truth? So without much further ado, let's talk about it. Lions, Tigers, and Tailgates. Oh my. The college football season is always a great time of the year. Besides the jerseys, the face paint, and the foam fingers, there's also the food. And nothing gets you more fired up for game day than Eckrich Smoked Sausage. They're naturally hardwood smoked sausage and have the perfect blend of spices. From buffalo sausage dip to sausage chili mac and cheese, Eckridge Smoked Sausage is the quick way to bring flavor to all your tailgate meals. Visit Eckridge.com for easy, one-of-a-kind sausage recipe. Eckridge, you do you. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence. The confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and the fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear. More driven. All right, let's talk about it. The Nebraska Cornhuskers have fallen yet again. We'll get to that again here in just a minute about what this means, what this was. But the rapid reaction from everybody that watched the game this past Saturday was the reaction to the onside kick. It falls on one person and one person alone. Here's Scott Frost on the decision to make that critical call there early in the third quarter. Didn't work. So anytime something doesn't work, you want it back. Um, we've been talking to the kids about being aggressive and attacking this thing for weeks, and I think they did that. Um, part of it was we had we had a couple things that we wanted to be aggressive. In. We had one earlier that we wanted to see if we got the look we wanted, and we we got a look is really good for it. And uh, I made that call, so it's on me. Um, you know, at the at that point in the game, I thought all the momentum was on our side. I thought if we got it, we could end the game. Um, and it, the way we were playing, uh, you know, I, I felt at that point like uh, like we had a really good chance of winning the game, and I felt like maybe we were the better team. And you know, I, you, you can't really foresee them scoring 14 straight uh, and us sputtering after we played 
well to start the second half on offense. So, again, those are excuses. If I had it over, I wouldn't make the call. All right, you heard from Scott Frost, and he obviously is one that's going to sit here and absorb a lot of the criticism after the decision. Understandably so. Here's why it was the wrong decision, okay? It, look, hindsight's twenty twenty. If they get that onside kick, then we're not sitting here totally overanalyzing everything that Scott Frost done in his four-plus years as the head coach. But here's why it made absolutely no sense. The reason why you go onside kick, first and foremost, is to steal a possession. Second reason why you go onside kick is because your defense can't stop the opposing offense because whether you give it to them at the 45-yard line or if you give it to them at their own 25 doesn't really matter because the result's going to be the exact same. Two reasons why you go onside kick. Number three is because you are trying to retake momentum of the football game. Any of those three boxes were checked, unchecked, what have you. Like Nebraska was in complete control. And at that point, here is the actual quote, and I want to make sure we be mindful of the actual quote. This is from Scott Frost himself. Quote, at that point of the game, I thought all the momentum was on our side. I thought if we got it, meaning the onside kick, we could end the game, end quote. All the momentum's on your side. There's absolutely no reason to put a defense, more on them in a minute, that had already struggled at times in the game on the short field. You had just made it a two-score game. Your defense had just gotten you the football, which allowed you to make it a two-score game. And here's the other thing. Let's say you get the onside kick, okay? You're up 11 at that point. You're up 28-17 early in the third quarter. You're cruising. Let's say you get the onside kick. Let's say you pick up a couple first downs and you kick a field goal. Tell me how big of a difference it is between leading in the middle of the third quarter by 14 or leading by 11. Tell me how big a difference it is leading by 18 or 11, assuming you score a touchdown after the onside kick. The answer is there's very little difference. So the onside kick made absolutely no sense, had no pulse for the game whatsoever, and I'm trying to be super critical of Scott Frost. Just you have to have an understanding. And one more thing about this, about why you don't make that call in that situation. Who are you playing against? Remind me. Northwestern, right? Say what you want about Northwestern's personnel. Say what you want about Northwestern's talent. You can say whatever you want. They've been called by people in the media fighting Reese Davises. Like people have made fun of that for a long time. I think it's absurd and it's ridiculous and it's low-hanging fruit. But say what you want about their personnel. If you don't think that their players are super athletic or fast or explosive, what have you, that's, that's your decision. That's your prerogative. But there has never been one person that has ever described Northwestern as being poorly coached. Never. If anything, quite literally the opposite. Nobody's more prepared than Northwestern. And because of what Pat Fitzgerald does in making sure his team's prepared, they are going to pay attention to every single detail throughout the course of the game. If you're going to pull a surprise onside kick, go ahead. Try it against a lot of teams. Try it against, say, you know, Maryland. Try it against, and there's no knock on Maryland, just saying like there are other teams that are less aware in that situation. Try it against the likes of a smaller Division II opponent. 
Try it against the likes of an Ohio State because you can't stop them anyways. Do not, under any circumstances, try a surprise onside kick against Northwestern. It's going to fail. It did fail. And as a result, Nebraska's on the losing end. Credit to Northwestern. They did what they needed to do. A lot of people are going to lose their mind about the onside kick. Understandably so. We just did a couple minutes on it here ourselves because I was clearly passionate about the mistake that it was anyways. But here's what I would be much more concerned about if I were Nebraska. I'd be a whole heck of a lot more concerned about the fact that your defense just gave up 527 yards to to Northwestern. And that's a defensive line that was flat out embarrassed. They also didn't tackle great. And last time I checked, when I'm watching the actual line of scrimmage, and credit Northwestern's offensive line was phenomenal in the game, they are blowing Nebraska defenders off the ball. And what was supposed to be one of Nebraska's strengths this year? Supposed to be the pass rush, right? I didn't see any pass rush. Very, very little pressure the entire day was put on Ryan Holinsky. They couldn't get anything going with their pass rush, and they couldn't stop the run. That is really concerning. So defensively, major issues for Nebraska with what they gave up this past weekend. And then on the offensive side of the football, we knew as they transitioned to Mark Whipple, they were going to be more of a throw-the-ball-all-over-the-yard style of attack. We knew that. that. That wasn't that big of a surprise. But what was a surprise is that they couldn't manage more than 2.2 yards per carry. You're going to say, hang on, that's not accurate. Well, if you take out the 46-yard touchdown run by Anthony Grant there early in the third quarter, they averaged 2.16 yards per carry. There was very little surge. They accounted, with the exception of that one run, for just 65 yards rushing the entire game on 30 carries. That's not good enough. Now, if you can't push Northwestern off the ball, what are you going to do against, say, Wisconsin? What are you going to do against, say, Iowa? What are you going to do against, say, Minnesota? If you're struggling against Northwestern, you are in for a long year. That's no disrespect to Northwestern. I have a ton of respect for them. But they gashed Nebraska with their offense going against that black shirt defense. And they held up really well along both lines of scrimmage. If I'm Nebraska, I'm very worried about my offensive and defensive lines this upcoming season based on the performance that we got from them in week zero. We all know the big pictures that now advances Nebraska do five and 21 and one score games. They're the first major college football team to lose seven straight games all by single digits since the AP poll debuted in 1936. And Scott Frost is now three and 23 when trailing or tied at halftime. That's their eighth straight loss where they were trailing at halftime. Okay, credit to Northwestern, man. A lot of very, very exciting stuff. It's the first time since 2017 they had 300 yards passing and 200 yards rushing. It's not over yet, but at this point right now, things are starting to get very shaky for Nebraska here moving forward in 2022. All right, Macro, I'm going to hit you with a whoa, Nelly, though. All right, so what do you say to Nebraska fans who all offseason heard that their offensive line was working hard, their defensive line, the black shirts were returning, and then you come out and you have that decision by Frost? It, it just, how do you? It's keep week hope zero, if you're Mark. A Nebraska fan? It, that's what you say. You say it's week zero, and you hope that they learn from the mistakes that they made. You hope that they get better. They, you hope that they don't have multiple turnovers. 
You hope that their receivers do a better job catching the football. You hope that they tackle better in space. Like it's week zero. So like anyone that's going to make this long prognostication about Scott Frost, oh, well, you might as well just send him home. He's done. Like, I'm not going to go that far. I'm not going to go that far just yet because I've seen several teams struggle early in the season only to get things turned around. Now, they got to get things turned around in a hurry. And some of the things that concern me, the fact that the offensive line didn't get great surge or push, the fact that the defense didn't do a great job at the line of scrimmage, it got gashed over and over and over and over again. Those are two things that cannot get easily repaired easily fixed and i would be worried like on a scale of one to ten my panic meter for nebraska this year is at about a seven ten being cancel the rest of the year it's over eight nine being all right it's a glimmer of hope eight being i can kind of see hope from a distance seven being there's still a lot of time left we can get there so i'm not going to totally put them in a coffin just yet. There's things that they can... And there were positives too. There were some things that I liked about what I saw from Nebraska, but there were also far too many negatives as well. And we also need to acknowledge, hey, look, they were playing against an offensive line in Northwestern that was ch clearly challenged all offseason. They came out and established a physical game plan from start to finish. So you got to give credit where credit is due. Maybe they're playing against a better Northwestern team than any of us thought. So that's the other thing. I think it's week zero. It's not panic. Hopefully they can get back on track and start playing a little bit better here in the days and weeks to come. All right, moving on to another team in the Big Ten. That would be Illinois. It was a very impressive performance. They went out, they beat Wyoming 38 to six. And what I loved most was this new offense. And it wasn't that different. Let's just, I mean, like, okay, maybe a little bit more shotgun for them what Brett Bielema was when he was at Wisconsin or even at Arkansas. But for the most part, what Barry Lunny, the new offensive coordinator, did, it really wasn't earth shattering. It wasn't groundbreaking, but it was an impressive performance, I think, on both sides of the ball. Chase Brown is phenomenal. We already knew that, though. And of course, this whole offseason, Brett Bielema was like, hey, you're not going to get hit. You're not going to get touched because you're our best player. And we need to make sure that we get you to the starting point of the season at as close to 100% as humanly possible. Well, he responded with 151 yards, averaged nearly eight yards a carry, and had just one carry in the fourth quarter. That was a touchdown that he scored on the first play in the fourth quarter. So he was terrific. Very optimistic about how he's going to fit into this offense. I also think that DeVito at quarterback, transfer over from Syracuse. Man, he was putting the ball on the money a lot. <laughs> now, there's occasional times in which he, I would like to see him not throw a 100-mile-an-hour fastball at the receiver, but man, he was putting the ball on the spot, was accurate and decisive, and I think the offensive line also did a really good job of keeping his jersey clean. DeVito's a guy that has traditionally kind of run around a lot and extended plays, sometimes unnecessarily extended plays, but I thought did a pretty good job of staying within the offense, clearly has a good feel what Barry Looney wants him to be. And I think the offense has a chance to be really, really good. How about that touchdown run by Reggie Love down the left side too, where you thought he was down, gets up, sprints for a 33-yard touchdown. Probably one of my favorite plays of the weekend. But I thought all things considered, maybe the performance of the weekend came from Illinois. Defensively, you hold the quarterback to 30 yards, passing on 5 of 25. The only negative that I could really find in Illinois' performance was field goal kicking. You know, and if, if, believe me, if I'm talking about field goal kicking, like you're in a good spot. <laughs> so I think that would be some area that I'd like to get addressed if I were Brett Bielema. But for the most part, man, Illinois, one of the performances of the weekend. Vanderbilt, 
would be right there alongside Illinois as one of the best performances of the weekend. They, of course, scored 63 points en route to dominating Hawaii from start to finish. They that they opened the season I, I getting just carved up right down the field. Hawaii goes down, scores a touchdown. It's like, oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> and sure enough, that was about the only thing that Hawaii had going for them all game long. I was so impressed. By the way, their quarterback, Mike Wright, played. He had 13-21 for 146, added a couple touchdowns to the year, but man, the rushing ability, that dual threat nature, I think they're going to have to lean heavily on that. Their quarterback run game, if you look at the SEC kind of across the, the landscape of the SEC, there's not that many teams that are really going to utilize a ton of quarterback run. Kentucky is one, Arkansas is one. But you look at the rest of the SEC, there's not a lot of teams that are doing designed quarterback runs eight, nine, ten times a game. Vanderbilt might be that team, and that will be difficult for opposing teams to prepare for. Maybe Florida does some quarterback run as well, but it's kind of TBD with that. I think they'll use it. I don't know if they'll use it as much as some of the aforementioned teams. So very optimistic with what I saw from Vanderbilt. Here's a couple of stats that just show you how impressive this victory was for the Commodores. It was their largest win in a non-conference game since 1941. It's their most points scored against an FBS opponent since 1948. That was when they beat Marshall. Who doesn't remember this game? 56-0. It was also their most points in any game since 1969 when they played against Davidson. That's right, Davidson. That's tied for the fifth most any points in school history, 601 total yards, most in the game since 2016. Mike Wright, of course, was phenomenal. And he was also the first Vanderbilt player with two passing touchdowns and two rushing touchdowns in a game since Chris Nixon did it back in 2006. So rare air there for the doors. What a way to start. Did anybody have a better week zero than Vanderbilt? I know Illinois might have performed better, but they got to go to Hawaii, hang out on Waikiki and dominated. Pretty good start for the doors. Finally, let's get into a couple of teams that were playing against lower-level competition, but worth notice, noticing because I feel like both these teams could be players in their respective division in the ACC. You're going to say, hang on, Florida State, really? I'm saying, yeah, well, I think Florida State's pretty good. Now, I'm not going to sit here and you know lose a whole lot of you know sleep about a performance uh, against Duquesne. I'm just not. I mean... It, it's Duquesne, y'all. Like, let's not get carried away. They should dominate the line of scrimmage. They should look pretty good in the run game. Problem is they didn't dominate the line of scrimmage, and yet they still look pretty good in the run game. That's because of their weapons at running back. Treshawn Ward went for 127. Lawrence Toafili went for just over 100. But how about this guy, Trey Benson? He might be running back one. I think Seminole fans are already on board with making him the running back one designation. He looked really good going for over 100 yards as well. You have three ball carriers. It's the first time in the last 25 years that FSU has had three different players go over the 100-yard mark. Great job as far as the productivity is concerned, but if you really go back and watch the game a little more closely, I'm a little concerned about Florida State's offensive line. I'm just going to be completely honest. I'm a little bit concerned. There were several examples of which Duquesne players were penetrating defensively and those running backs had to make something out of nothing. Now, fortunately for them, those running backs did just that. But the injuries now to the offensive line, will they take their toll? Because I did not come away very impressed. There were a few plays in which they created huge openings in which a Mack truck could drive through. But those plays were a little bit too far 
two, they're, they're just few and far between. And against a team like Duquesne, you better be able to create a huge gap half the time. Wasn't the case for Florida State, but a good job by Jordan Travis. He's now won six of his last eight starts, so he's in a pretty good place. And I like I said, I think that three-headed monster at running back is legit. A couple of nice big plays down the field. Very, very impressed with the receiver core, which I knew I would be. Those transfers that they've added and a couple of pieces that have now blossomed. I think that receiver core has a chance to be one of the most most improved groups in the ACC this year. So very impressive start, I thought, from Florida State. Dominating a game that they should dominate. Speaking of a game that should have been dominated, North Carolina played against Florida AM. They won 56 24. The game got sideways late, but man, there for a little bit, it was a little uncomfortable if you're a fan of the Tar Heels. Look, they were good. Drake May was excellent. There was some weather in the area having to throw a wet ball, all those are the things to throw for nearly 305 touchdowns. Pretty dang impressive for your first start. I also think that when you look at what they did with Amari Hampton, first UNC player with 100 rushing yards and multiple rushing touchdowns since Ronnie McGill back in 2004. He's also the first UNC freshman to rush for multiple touchdowns as a season opener since Michael Carter back in 17. We all know Michael Carter became a great player. So maybe running back's not as big of a concern for UNC as I originally thought. I'll tell you what was a concern was defensively to give up 24 points against Florida a That's the first time... FAMU has scored 20-plus points against an FBS opponent. That's right. Since the FBS-FCS split back in 1978, it's the first time FAMU scored over 20 against an FBS opponent. They got to tighten up a couple things on that side of the ball. It was very base. They did drop an interception or two. So I'm not going to lose too much sleep over Gene Chiswick waving the magic wand. Maybe there's still going to be good quality play coming down the stretch. But man, they need to shore up a couple loose ends on that side of the ball or else they're going to face some of those potent offenses in the ACC Coastal. They're going to need to figure things out and figure things out in a hurry. All right, finally, putting a bow on it, let's go to the MEAC SWAC Challenge where Howard and Alabama State were underway down there in Atlanta. How about Eddie Robinson Jr. winning his debut as the head coach at any level, by the way, for Alabama State, they took care of business 23-13. It was the first time that the SWAC program won the MEAC SWAC Challenge since Prairie View a and won it back in 2018. Now, the MEAC still leads the all-time series 11-5, but Alabama State, I think, leads Howard in the school's all-time series. That would be 2-0. That's what Alabama State is. Look, a couple of things that I liked about this. It was called there late. You know, I know they've had some challenges with the weather and everything like that. So it was a difficult game to watch because it was choppy and it was just, you know, stop, start, step, start. And it went for like seven hours, it felt like. So when they finally called it at the end, I was asleep, admittedly, at 1 a.m. So I was not awake for the end of it. But I admire and going back and kind of taking a peek at it, a couple of things that needed to get cleaned up. It was a good start for Demetrius Davis. He's the transfer from Auburn for Alabama State. He looked efficient. We all know he's got great athleticism. Would like him to tighten up a little bit of the accuracy stuff. Thought there were some good catches made by Alabama State players. And then the other thing, Alabama State, too. I think they can be dangerous this year. I really believe that. But you cannot have 11 flags. Look, first game of the year, obviously a rivalry game, a big spotlight, big stage, 11 flags too much. You cannot have that as they move forward into the regular season. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. 
Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day. But sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. All right, now it's time to dive into low-hanging fruit. And this is Kubiak's favorite segment. He's from the Feinbaum Show, okay? That's where his, that's his past. He was with Paul and company for, what, seven or eight years. So low-hanging fruit is his specialty. Kubes, uh, go ahead. All right, let's <laughs> start it off. Brew McCoy, now eligible through the NCAA. With his addition, Tennessee has the best offense in the SEC East. Low-hanging fruit or truth? I actually think this is truth. Believe it or not, like I'm gonna, you know, it's rare when I say truth. It's it's very rare. It's almost always low-hanging fruit because you know not everybody needs to be fired and not every player needs to get replaced and all that stuff. But so like I'm actually gonna say this is true. Brew McCoy, and like this is all. He's a little bit of a mythical figure at this point. Um, a lot of people remember the name. It was because of the recruitment. He started off at Texas and then transferred back to SC and now has transferred to, to Tennessee. We're not really sure you know, what he is, but you talk to people that are more knowledgeable about the situation than I am. And that's you know, not even the recruiting gurus. Uh, you talk to college coaches that have actually seen him on the field have witnessed the natural playmaking ability. He might be legit. Now, here's where Tennessee's at. He's obviously not going to be the number one. That's going to be Cedric Tillman. Uh, Jalen Hyatt, who I thought had a really promising year last year and was poised, I think, to take a significant leap. Him and Brew McCoy, if they are 2A and 2B, that's a three-headed monster right now in the SEC that's as wide open as anybody. And think about this, too. It's probably the strangest year that we've seen in the Southeastern Conference as far as quality depth at wide receiver. Like just think about the landscape. All right, Alabama's replacing everybody. A&M, and now Anaya Smith's a one, but everyone else is a little bit at this point, a, a bit of an unknown. Uh, LSU, Josh Boutte is a one, but everyone else is maybe the tiniest bit of an unknown. Uh, Arkansas lost their alpha dog at wide receiver. Ole Miss lost everybody. Mississippi State's more of a more situational system, but their number one from last year is gone. Georgia's all at tight end. They have good wide receivers, but I don't know what the pecking order really is. Florida, similar. I think you can make a case that South Carolina by season's end will have good weapons, but right now at wide receiver specifically, not sure exactly what the pecking order is. Kentucky lost their dude in Wandale Robinson. Vandy, we know that they're still going to be rushing attack right now. And then finally, Missouri, Luther Burden, who's a five-star freshman, might be all-world, but still a little bit of an unknown. So I think in a, in an era in the SEC this year where that it is kind of open as far as the best offense is concerned, 
I think Tennessee, Brew McCoy is as advertised as a legitimate case to make. All right. Moving on. The onside kick call by Scott Frost was the worst decision by a head coach in college football playoff era. Low hanging fruit or truth? <laughs> okay. Well, it's low hanging fruit because there is no such thing as worst. Like, I don't do superlatives when it comes to bad decisions because if it's a bad decision, it's binary. It's, is it a bad decision? Yes or no. It's not, is this a worse decision than this? This is a worse decision than this. Okay. So, like, you guys and your scale of like, this is the worst decision. It's impossible. It's either a bad decision or a good decision. It goes in the bad decision bus bucket, okay? So, yes, it was bad. Uh, others that come to mind, like the SEC championship game, will always, I'll always remember this. 2018, Georgia ran a fake punt with Justin Fields, and they were the personal protector. And I mean, it didn't even stand a chance. But you think I'm really sitting there? I'm, I'm just out of sheer curiosity. Coops, you tell me if you are. Do you really think I sit there and keep a running list of every bad decision, and then I rank them accordingly? No, but we should. Okay, well, maybe. All right, perfect. Starting here on Monday, August 29th, or if you want to retroact, let's say August 25th, so we can at least account for week zero this year, I want you, Coobs, to rank the worst decisions in college football this year, and we'll revisit them at the season's end. Is that is that Okay. That's fair. I already have number one in the book, so we'll okay, just number go one, number one, after We this. have an early leader, okay? If we have an early leader, I'll give you that. All right, moving on. TJ Finley was named the starter at Auburn over the weekend. Short of a miracle playoff run, it won't matter, and Brian Harson will move on from Auburn after the season. Low-hanging fruit or truth? I, I, this one, I hate. I will not straddle the fence. Um. I'm going to say it's low-hanging fruit because I think ultimately if Brian Harson goes out and says goes 8 and 4, you know, or 7 and 5 or has maybe a surprisingly good season. A lot of people are really down on Auburn this year. I for one think they have a chance and have a chance to be pretty good. Now the run game's got to get going. The offensive line's already had a little bit of injury concern here in fall camp. Uh lose Nick Brahms to center. That's that's a pretty significant loss. Uh, maybe Finley's taking a huge step, though. Maybe he's a lot better. He got all the reps in spring. Uh, Zach Calzada was out for spring, so he was trying to play catch-up and just never could. Robbie Ashford's the backup quarterback, likely, at least at this point, because of the role that he'll likely play in the offense using quarterback run. But here's what I would say, is if Brian Harson goes and goes, say, 8-4, and four, has a really good year, Auburn's not going to fire him. No way. But I can tell you what might happen is that there might be another school that would be in hot pursuit of Brian Harson. There's buzz that there was significant interest from Washington to hire Brian Harson last year. So obviously they ended up going with Kalen DeBoer, but I think there was some interest there from Washington as they were starting to look into and evaluate possible candidates. So uh, I, I think that he would be a hot commodity at the end of the season. And knowing what I know about Auburn right now and the fact that he's kind of twisting in the wind, would he be open to other opportunities elsewhere? Probably. Um, but at the same time, man, if he goes seven and five, eight and four, he's going to have leverage. And I think that knowing the way things were kind of set up for him early in the offseason, I think he'd love to basically just 
go and get it completely turned around to Auburn and win a championship, even though he wouldn't be doing it for the people that tried to undermine him. You do it because he said, I told you so. <laughs> so I don't know. I think it'd be an interesting case study, but I think it's low hanging fruit. But I just showed you an example of, of why I think he'd still be in considerable demand at very attractive places, especially if he has a positive year this year. Okay. And Michigan announced that Cade McNamara will start game one. J.J. McCarthy will start another game. And then they will decide a starting quarterback by about week three. Starting two QBs never works, and Michigan will struggle this year. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Now, you used an operative word there. You said starting two QBs. Okay. Okay. Having two QBs that play often. Using two QBs has already proven this to be low-hanging fruit because they used two QBs last year with success. And albeit, well, I know people are going to sit there and say, well, the defense carried the day. The defense, why they... They got to the playoff. And two QBs played throughout the course of the season. If one guy was struggling, they'd put the other guy in. If the other guy was struggling, they put the other guy in. Then they used McCarthy and McNamara in a style of offense that would best suit them. So when McNamara is out there, more traditional, uh, maybe a little bit more predictable, McCarthy, utilize quarterback run, designed quarterback runs when he's in there. Use his athleticism, use his strong arm. So you almost, when you play against Michigan, and that's why I think the two quarterback system is not dead. I think if anything, in today's day and age, it could be highly functional, assuming you have two guys that are different from a skill set standpoint. Now, if both guys were exactly like Cade McNamara and Cade McNamara had a twin and they were the they were the co-starters, it would make no sense. You'd pick the best one because they're the same skill set. Which one gives you the best chance? This one. But since they're different skill sets and I'm a defensive coordinator having to prepare for Michigan this week, I have to prepare for almost two different offenses. One that involves quarterback run game, one that involves you know, different run fits because of the numbers that you have to have in the box for a quarterback run. And one that is more prototypical of what Michigan's been in the past. So I think it can be advantageous. Assuming both quarterbacks are okay with it, and clearly they are, I have no problem whatsoever with utilizing a two-quarterback system, especially if there isn't one guy that's pulled significantly ahead of the other in the tandem derby that they've had for the last eight months. So I know you want to say that it's truth and that Michigan's going to go 0-12 because you love low-hanging fruit and you want you just want all the low-hanging fruit crazy questions that you ask. You want them to be true, and they're just not. That's couldn't not be more true. The, couldn't be That's more than opposite. True. I'm happy. Okay. I'm happy. It's low hanging fruit. You know, <laughs> I'm just here to ask the questions. I, yeah, you are doing a thankless job, my friend. We appreciate you for asking the difficult questions. Uh, if you asked that question to Jim Harbaugh, I'd be curious to know his response. Um, or if you asked Scott Frost about whether or not that was the worst decision of the college football playoff era, uh, I'd love to know his response as well. But hey, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. Um, we live in a worst, best world. It's never just okay or just not okay. It's always the best or the worst, and it's a polarizing world that we live in. But uh, no, uh, I don't think that was the worst decision of all time. What about Maybe the some. best tweet you saw this weekend? Yeah. Well, the best tweet I saw this weekend did come from Northwestern Nebraska, and it came from the offensive line coach of Northwestern, Kurt Anderson, saying that they only threw up a few times in practice this week. Remember, famously, Scott Frost 
or infamously, I guess, depending on how you look at it, said a couple weeks ago that the offensive line was throwing up 15 to 20 times a day in practice. And we're just, we're tough. That's not that first of all, that's not toughness. That's I that's and I obviously don't think that that was true either, because there is not a single offensive line player on that team that would that would continue to persevere through practices that required them to throw up 15 to 20 times. It's absurd. So I always felt like that was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but Kurt Anderson fought back, as you can see here, with we only threw up, you know, however many times. So pretty good smack right there. And clearly you could tell, you could tell. That Northwestern, there must have been some deep research done by Pat Fitzgerald and his staff because they played inspired football on Saturday, man. And that team, they played up until the whistle and in some cases just beyond. They were super physical, especially their offensive line, man. I was so impressed with what I saw from them. And someone clearly lit a fire underneath them. Uh, Maybe it was Kurt Anderson. Maybe it was Pat Fitzgerald. Who knows? But... It was a very impressive performance. And as a result, right now, Northwestern in the driver's seat there in college football. One of the performances of the weekend. Thanks for being with us today. It's really been a lot of fun. Y'all, football's here. We have a great week to look forward to. We're going to get into a coach interview or two. We'll tell you about those here in the days to come. You're going to be very excited. Marcus Freeman. Yes, that's right. That Marcus Freeman, the head coach of the Fighting Irish, might be joining us here at some point later in the week. So stay tuned for that. And we're going to get into a lot of things. Like, What are 10 things we want to learn this week? We're going to have Chris the Felique on later in the week. So we just have a lot that we need to get to because college football is here. We made it, ladies and gentlemen. We were able to react this past weekend, and now we're able to look forward into week one when everybody will be taking the field, trying to put their best foot forward here in 2022. Please like, rate, and subscribe wherever it is you're getting the content, whether it's on ESPN's YouTube channel, if you're on Apple Podcast, or if you're vi- visiting us from Spotify, like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It helps the show out. Always college football at gmail.com. Interact with us there. Toss us a mailbag question. We'll start getting to some of those here in the days and weeks to come on social media at always CFB. You can interact with the show there as well. For Mark Kubiak, I'm Greg McElroy, and all of us here at Always College Football, we really appreciate you being with us. And remember, it's always college football.